0: sharing a webinar that we held on January 19, 2021. This webinar was moderated by Rachel Washburn and features some of our geopolitical intelligence group members, Lieutenant General Robert Walsh, Major General James spider Marks, Lieutenant General Vincent Stewart, and our macro strategist, Peter Chur. The title of this webinar was the Geostrategic Surprises in 2021. The topics that we discuss include China and the future of Taiwan, North Korea's options, Iran, back on the offensive, and cyber threats. Rachel does a great job of setting the table and leading the discussion. I'll turn it over to her right now.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Academy Securities. Webinar focused on the geostrategic surprises we may face this year. Geopolitical challenges and tensions remain high around the world. And as the 20th century world order evolves and the U.S. again enters an era of strategic competition. Add in the near instantaneous, wide-ranging threats faced by cyber warfare and cyber crime, and we have a risk landscape that we cannot ignore. Academy aims to provide a measure calm, and a unique and productive uh, level of insights in these often daunting times. For those new to our geopolitical and macro content, welcome. Academy is a minority and disabled better known investment bank with a social mission to train, hire, and mentor post 9/11 veterans. We are nearly 50% veteran staffed and have a commitment to lead with capabilities, not just our designation. Our geopolitical and macro teams are an integral part of that commitment. Our geopolitical intelligence group is comprised of 14 recently retired admirals and generals that are intimately aware of the global issues that impact policy. With over 25 years of industry experience, Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy, contextualizes the input from our team of retired admirals and generals helping investors and corporations alike understand the implications of national security and policy challenges. Today, I am proud to be joined by Peter and three of our geopolitical advisors. Major General spider Marks is head of geopolitical strategy at Academy and is the former commanding general of the US Army Intelligence Center. Lieutenant General Robert Walsh served in the Marine Corps for over 35 years and was the commanding general of the Marine Corps Combat Development Command and the deputy commandant for the Combat Development and Integration. Lt. Gen. Vince Stewart served in the United States Marine Corps for over 35 years as well. He served as the Deputy Commander of U.S. Cyber Command and was the 20th Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. We are incredibly grateful that you have joined us all today. We welcome any questions that you may have. At the bottom of your screen, you will see a Q&A icon. If at any time during the discussion you would like to ask our team a question, please type it in there and we can pose it to the panelists. We really would like this to be an engaged uh, discussion with our audience. General Stewart, General Marks, General Walsh, thank you so much for being here today. Peter, we're really excited to get started. Over the last year, China has remained a topic of primary importance. Uh, In our last uh, end of year piece, we've highlighted how the first Call that the Biden administration is going to make is going to be depression. She, uh, it's only appropriate that we should start with China. So General Stewart, would love to start with you. How is will the Biden administration address the uh, global ambitions of a rising China?
2: Uh, thanks, uh, Rachel. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to participate in, uh, in this uh, webinar. Uh, probably the most important difference in the administration's approach uh, this uh, in the Biden administration, is multilateralism. I think in many cases in the previous administration, uh, we tackled China almost as a 1v1 and didn't leverage our partners and allies as as much as we probably ought to have. So I think the first thing you'll see is a much broader multilateral approach to dealing with China uh, and, and probably second is, maybe not quite so much public diplomacy, uh, where you know part of the challenge for China is, you might see a tweet in the morning that says, this is our position. And by the end of the day, you'll see a tweet that says, this is actually our position now that the world has reacted to our position in the morning. So uh, multilateralism, uh, much more private diplomacy, Uh, leveraging our allies and partners, but probably more importantly is uh, taking a much broader approach, uh, leveraging the elements of national power a little more more discreetly. I think China has done that very well. We have not done that as effectively. Uh, So one of the first things I think uh, uh, will come out of the administration is a more comprehensive uh, uh, strategy that leverages all of the elements of national power. It's not just about military capability. It's not just about economic capability. It's how all the pieces come together in a coherent way, leveraging our allies and partners and uh, doing it a little bit more discreetly. And I'll stop there.
1: Appreciate that, sir. I think one of the big risks that we discussed at the end of the year that I, is absolutely top of mind, and Peter can definitely speak to this, is the risk to Taiwan. Uh, General Walsh would love to hear your thoughts on on what that risk looks like. Is it something that we should start being prepared for? And what are the signs that we're going to see that will indicate that uh, China, mainland China is looking to threaten or encroach upon uh, Taiwan?
3: Well, thank you, uh, Rachel also, and thank you for the opportunity to address the webinar also. I think uh, a lot of people compare Hong Kong and Taiwan. I think they're, they're drastically different. Um, and I think the approach, when we talk about China with taking a long view, I think uh, if you look at one of the great philosophers of China, uh, uh, he was a general and a writer was Sun Tzu. And one of the things that Sun Tzu said was uh, subdue without fighting. And that long view that China takes is, I don't think they want to go to war over Taiwan. In fact, if you kind of take a look at what they've done to kind of build economic relationships between Taiwan and themselves to kind of get those ties together, and then the way they've grown up their military. In fact, if you kind of take a look at, it's kind of what we talked about before about with Russia, with gray zone operations, where it's not war, it's not peace. They operate in this gray zone that's underneath the surface. And I think as you've watched them build up their military in the East and South China Seas, they're really, in a lot of ways, turning both of those into a uh, PLA or Chinese uh, Liberation Army Lake. Um, I think as you look at their long view, they'd rather go that approach uh, and not go to war. And at the same time, you look at the Biden administration who Biden's brought in, he's brought in people like uh, Kurt Campbell, who is now on the national or will be on the National Security Council. A lot of experience uh, in the Asia Pacific area. And he's taken the approach there of been very public about uh, Chinese adventurism, and as General Stewart said too, of taking a multilateral approach of gaining partners. On the US military side, I think you'll continue to see the buildup uh, or, or continued development of advanced military cap- US capabilities in the region. Because one of the ways that we're not gonna go to war is by having a good deterrent effect and leave no room at all for fighting by having just you know, a capability that China is not going to want to come and take uh, Taiwan by force. So again, I just kind of summarize that I think it's going to be a long path of influence as China continues to do these gray zone operations by lots and lots of flights, warships operating in the area. It's kind of an intimidation factor. And eventually their intent is to make it so hard for the U.S. that the U.S. isn't able to counter the threat in that region.
2: Hey, uh, hey, Rachel, can, can I just build on, just because I love Sun Tzu, um, yes. you know, uh, uh, and I'll paraphrase here because I couldn't find the quote, uh, superior warriors uh, win before they go to war. Inferior warriors go to war and then figure it out how to win. And that's really quite the approach uh, that China will take with regards to Taiwan. There's not a desire uh, for conflict Taiwan's got a very capable force, they'll challenge them, it won't be easy. But the things that they can do to win before they go to war, without going to war, really is the approach that they'll take long-term.
1: General Marks would love to hear your thoughts and build on the topic. about where you see the U.S.-China relationship, us taiwan military relationship, and you know, where partnership and competition exists um, as we see the tensions rise in the South China Sea and uh, in that region.
4: Okay, I'm not gonna compete with these, these great gentlemen in terms of Sun Tzu quotes. Um, I'm not even gonna go down that path, but I, I need to tell you, Rachel, again, thank you. I'm honored to be a part of this conversation today. Both Vince and Bob really nailed it in terms of structuring the view toward China. The thing I think is most important now is that the definition among nations in terms of the competition with China, not just the United States and China, but kind of a global view of how we all must compete. We have to cooperate, but we are competing with China in many ways, and China with others, is it's all about at this point the economic level of competition. As General Stewart indicated, we got multiple elements of power. And the definition in terms of our competition with China now and others in terms of their competition is all about the economic elements that need to be addressed. In fact, I'd even go so far to say what we're seeing now might be reminiscent of what we saw with the collapse of the Soviet Union and with the peace offensive by Gorbachev in advance of the loss of the Soviet Union was that he, Gorbachev, was moving down a path with a transition of power in the United States from Reagan to Bush, where the Soviet Union, ultimately Russia, was going to be the singular influential voice in Europe. And in fact, the United States was potentially losing a position of influence, albeit we had created the conditions for the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's not dissimilar to what we see now with China in that they are building an incredibly capable military. In in addition to that, they are putting on very much what's called a wolf warrior diplomacy phase, which means they're being much more aggressive diplomatically. They have their their uh, debt diplomacy where they're buying up debt and engaging economically across the board. The United States, which inarguably remains an incredibly influential voice could be in decline vis-a-vis China. It's gotta be defined in terms of those economic those economic elements. And we need to be, very, very cautious of the fact that we are going to maintain an incredibly high level of military readiness, but we don't wanna get ourselves into this rush or this mindset, both as Vince and Bob have indicated, that we cannot define that competition exclusively exclusively through the lens of the military. We'll find ourselves in a similar spot, potentially, as the former Soviet Union back in the late 80s, early 90s. Peter, I would love to have you join. Uh,
1: How do you view the threat to Taiwan? Um, How are the markets reacting
5: to this escalating dynamic? I view the threat to Taiwan as relatively serious. I think Xi has made it pretty clear that one of the things he would eventually like to accomplish is the folding of Taiwan in. I think we've seen some of this long game plan at play. Um, And two other things that we haven't really touched on that I think are also part of this longer term game plan is, What China did, even a little bit with Hong Kong, is they established some things in Shenzhen and other cities that made the economic infrastructure that at one time made Hong Kong really critical to mainland China less critical. So if you think of Taiwan as a business center, as high-tech manufacturing, they've got skills that mainland China doesn't have, but mainland China is aggressively trying to get those skills onshore to diminish the importance of Taiwan and I think the other issue, and this ties a little bit maybe to how we've behaved as a country for the last four years and even longer, is Taiwan has China as a neighbor. And I think they have to be very careful of committing too much to us when it's been unclear what the U.S. commitment is across the globe, right? Are we committed to some of these things? And so it's very easy to say, yeah, we'll be tough when you've kind of got this you know huge group right beside you. So I think Taiwan something... It's really on my radar screen. I think we have to be very cautious about it. I think we have to see any opportunity that China may take to accelerate that long-term game plan. And part of the reason I think it's very important is the Taiwanese insurance companies have been a big part of our capital markets. Um, They are very large investors in corporate debt. So anything that derailed that would be probably at least short-term problematic. I think the Federal Reserve could deal with it, but we're watching that. And just to take one step back on China, I do think some of the things that we've addressed here are very accurate. And a good way of thinking maybe of President Biden as he gets inaugurated is that he will have a little person on his shoulder talking about national security. And I really think it's important that as we think about how we're gonna deal with China on trade, there's gonna be a lot of room for maneuvering. There's gonna be a lot of things that are, you know, useful for both us and China to do together. But I think anything that's really high tech is going to attract a lot of attention. And from a national security perspective and anything that's really medical, Health equipment is also gonna attract a lot of attention because we wanna make sure from a national security standpoint, we have that capacity internally. So I think those are things that are gonna be going on as this is all playing out. And I do believe ESG investing as that becomes a bigger part is gonna take a more critical look at what companies use, how they're dealing with China from an ESG perspective. here yeah, that's
1: a great segue into my next thought, my next question. Certainly competition for resources have driven policy um, for a long time and uh, primarily energy resources have been a huge driver for where we create uh, partnership or where uh, maybe there is conflict in the past. Now um, with maybe a diminished uh, importance around energy as we become energy independent, there's a focus on rare earth competition. Uh, minerals. Can you discuss where you see um, competition in that arena at this time? And uh, maybe uh, General Marks, you can follow
4: up on that
5: thought? Yeah, I think Rachel, that's spot on that as we head to sustainable energy, there's gonna be a lot of different resources that we need, anything that's a component of a battery. And I think it is an opportunity to shift relationships across the globe. Countries that maybe were strategically important because of oil, maybe less so, other countries may you know, appear more important. You do have China on this global you know, quest for resources. I think we're gonna be looking at it. I suspect that in two to three years, this is something everyone's gonna be talking about. And it's time to really understand now where we stand and where we're headed.
4: You know, if I can, if I can follow up on what Peter just said, um, the, the notion of rare earths is absolutely critical to our national security. Um, You know, in the discussion in the midst of this pandemic, hopefully we are emerging at some tail end of this thing here in in short order. But what we've realized is this is not the death of globalization, the end of globalization, but it's the redefinition of globalization. So what can you bring onshore? What can you bring on nearshore? And what must you continue to um, engage in terms of our uh, trade and our market involvement over the horizon? So we will continue to have relationships with China and other nations um, that are out there in order to maintain our national security imperatives. However, you know, when you think about it anecdotally, 100% of the antimony that goes into every, every every type of munition that the United States uh, builds comes from China, 100% of it comes from China. So we're not building munitions, all classes of uh, munitions that are necessary for our hardware without going to China and saying, look, we need to buy this stuff from you. However, there are mines in the United States, there are mines in Canada, where we can have a greater reliance and involvement in terms of our ability to grab that cap of that resource and make it available to ourselves. But we've really kind of gotten ourselves into this conundrum where we can't get out of our way regulatorily in terms of our ability to access that within the United States. Just as an example, as as we go forward in terms of our responsibility to make sure that we can do what's important and to put on the table, those things that are non-negotiable in terms of our national security posture.
2: uh, Rachel, uh, but I think one of the things that this really highlights is as much as China is a competitor, there's some space where we actually need to be cooperative or we can't achieve uh, some of our objectives. Uh, the objectives that we want to achieve with climate, for instance, cannot be uh, achieved without getting China to play along in uh, in, in the climate uh, conversation. Uh, rare Earths are places where we've got to find ways to collaborate and cooperate. So, yes, there's this tension that we'll see because of the competition from a rising China, but uh, we will not be able to achieve some of our objectives unless we have cooperative arrangements with China. And that will be a delicate balance in the administration
1: Certainly, and a very important distinction. Um, we actually have a question from the audience that uh, would love to pose to you, uh, General Stewart, um, and then General Walsh, uh, would love to hear your thoughts also. Um, as we have a new administration coming in um, and even with some of the, the recent announcements today about the um, classifying the detention and the treatment of uh, Uyghurs in China as genocide, there's going to be a renewed um, sense of attention on human rights when it comes to building partnerships and um, in foreign engagement. Can you discuss maybe where um, you know where are we going to see surprises of changes in partnership, whether that be Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, India, you know where human rights issues might take uh, a, a bit of a renewed focus?
2: Yeah, that's that's one of those areas that you will see a distinction. Um, where our foreign policy will be driven in some part by human rights and, and uh, upfront. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what our relationship with the Saudis. Uh, uh, as you get to energy independence, there's res- less reliance on the Saudis. Now they can still drive the market as they uh, demonstrated here recently. Um, but uh, our, our, our approach uh, will be shaped I shouldn't say our approach, the administration's approach will be shaped by uh, human rights behavior, um, uh, weapon sales. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how our, uh, our approach to Israel in terms of uh, Palestinians. Uh, I think that dynamic has changed a little bit with the, the uh, acceptance, the outward acceptance of uh, the state of Israel by a number of Arab states. Uh, that's a significant dynamic uh, that's changing. I think that will continue to progress. Um, but uh, we are, we're going to shape, uh, I would imagine the administration will shape their foreign policy around uh, much more compliance with, uh, with human rights, uh, acceptable norms of behavior. And uh, that will change how we interact uh, with China, with the Uyghurs, uh, and with the Saudis. Some of the things that uh, this uh, incoming administration will not uh, find acceptable. Uh, the, the, challenge, the challenge in Israel is um, uh, occupied territory is. If, if you if you walk the ground and you see where the uh, quote occupied territories are, there's absolutely no way that Israel could evacuate the the uh, thousands of uh, Israelis that are in those occupied territories today. And, and move them back to Jerusalem or some other place. So I don't think uh, that's going to be a a negotiating position for Israel. Yes, clearly uh, the administration will shape their foreign policy around uh, human rights behavior and acceptable norms. Uh, Of course, based on last week, we might not want to talk about law, but uh, we'll see how that plays out.
1: General Walsh, your thoughts on how we're going to see some
3: of these relationships evolve? Yeah, sure, Rachel. Very much parallel with what uh, General Stewart said. Um, you know, if, if anything, the, the Biden administration coming in has really put, I, I wouldn't say we'd expect uh, human rights to be on the front burner of everything they do diplomatically, but it's going to be off the back burner. It's going to be out there in front. Uh, things like the UN Human Rights Council that we pulled out of, I would expect that we'd be Uh, fully active in that. Uh, Vice President Biden in the run-up to the elections called, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia pariah. Those kind of comments are really sending uh, reverberations throughout the autocratic countries in the world going, hey, there's gonna be a different uh, sheriff on the block coming up in the way uh, human rights is gonna be treated. Um, We talked about China at the beginning. I think the other thing too, is we talk about China exceptionalism, where we treat China differently when it comes to, um, you know, whether it comes to uh, how they work with uh, green energy, pollution, but also on how they deal with human rights. And we've treated them separately in the past. So, you know, like you mentioned, how Israel deals with it, Saudi Arabia, India, Venezuela, we need to put China right on the front page on how they're treating human rights. And the part today where Secretary Pompeo came out today and talked about that, uh, uh, possible genocide in uh, Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. Um, China does very well with dividing and conquering. They work unilaterally, divide people, and then put that pressure on them to comply. And in this case, that multilateralism that General Stewart talked about, uh, things like the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, uh, 57 countries that are involved in that, uh, that council, they as a group can put a lot of pressure globally on the problem in Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs and the U.S. can lead a lot of that
1: effort. Pivoting some to uh, North Korea, it obviously was a a very volatile tactic in the last administration. Uh, General Marks, maybe your thoughts on how we can anticipate the, the Biden administration to approach this challenging relationship and then Can we expect more nuclear tests and long-range missile tests uh, in 2021?
4: Yeah, I think the short answer to your second question is there will be nuclear tests. There there will be missile tests. I think it's fair to also assume that the ability that North Korea has to marry those capabilities together exists, is extant right now. So we should be very, very cautious about it. Um, But any solution toward our relationship or the regional relationship, the global relationship with Pyongyang, is going to go through both Seoul and Beijing. So we need to be very mindful of that, Um, realizing that the current um, administration in Seoul is very open to having um, what I would call a softer approach toward North Korea. Look, um, Moon Jae-in is very interested in, in getting a Nobel Peace Prize and he'd love to have some form of rapprochement or openness or opening with Pyongyang, I'm, and I'm not certain what he's willing to give away in order to achieve that. So the United States needs to do a lot of what I'd call fence mending in terms of our relationship in South Korea. This administration, the Trump administration has been very hard in terms of burden sharing on the peninsula, just like we've been very hard with, uh, with the Abe administration and what's happening with us militarily in terms of our, uh, the burden sharing in Japan as well we need to be able to go to Seoul and I could see where this administration might be much more agreeable in terms of what Seoul wants to try to achieve on the peninsula. And the United States must be mindful of what is absolutely sacrosanct in terms of our relationship. It has less to do with the peninsula and more to do with a global threat. And it's fair to say, and General Stewart would tell you based on his previous role at DIA, how we can attribute capabilities to, to the North in, in, in advance of what the realization of those might be so that we can posture ourselves appropriately with friends and neighbors.
1: General Stewart, how do you see the threat from North Korea at this time?
2: Well, North Korea uh, continues to signal exactly what they intend to do. They've always said, uh, written into their constitution that they're a, they're a nuclear state. Uh, they talked about their ability to reach targets uh, so that they have the ultimate insurance. Uh, the question uh, going forward is, can they build beyond a, uh, a threatening capability, uh, a military threatening capability? I think ultimately, uh, Kim Jong-un would like to see uh, a, a growing economy. Um, that's what makes the next relevant. Uh, he's become relevant because all of the, great powers have entertained him. He's been to Russia, China. Uh, U.S. President uh, went and saw him. So uh, from a uh, recognition as a global uh, nuclear power, he's gotten all the checks. The next big thing is uh, how can he grow that economy so that he doesn't have a population that is starving? Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things he found appealing about uh, President Trump is because President Trump was going to help him to grow an economy. Uh, but North Korea will continue to be a challenge for the administration. If I were going to pick a uh, a, uh, a nation-state that would challenge them early in that first 90 to 180 days just to see their reaction, I'd probably say it would be North Korea. Um, there could be some things that could uh, happen in the in the Persian Gulf, but uh, the the great strategic challenge, I think, would be North Korea. Um, no, i stop there. There was one other point I was going to make, but let has gone.
4: Let, let me pile on to, uh, to Vince's comment. Um, and it may not, in complete agreement, it may not be Kim's decision to challenge the new Biden administration. Circumstances may force him into that. And when you're looking at the pandemic and their ability to not respond to this pandemic, and it may, in fact, accelerate in the north. You could have you could have all the ingredients for not a collapse of the regime, but a real challenge to the regime, which is the last thing Kim wants to try to handle now.
1: Peter, where do you see opportunity existing uh, with our relationship with North, north Korea?
5: You know, I think it was one relationship that definitely was impacted a lot by COVID because I would say this time last year, there were actually some slightly encouraging signs coming out of North Korea. You know, a couple of our generals had often thought kind of from the other end that there might be some opening up of North Korea, which would be a great opportunity economically given the size of North Korea's economy, the relative you know, natural resources compared to South Korea. And I think that all got derailed with COVID and the pandemic. So I think that was a potential opportunity loss where it seems like we are clearly now in a worse position in terms of any sort of, you know, coming together with North Korea than we might have been a year ago. So I think that's a little bit frustrating and disappointing because that would have been a really interesting economic opportunity for our companies in the globe if they could have opened North Korea up a little bit.
1: General Stewart mentioned uh, potential threats coming out of the Gulf. Um, Obviously, tensions with Iran continue to escalate. There's been some sort of inflammatory actions um, made by them. Uh, General uh, Marks, you know, what really is the feasibility of engagement with Iran rejoining the JCPOA? What does policy around Iran look like moving forward?
4: Well, the ball's in our court, right? I mean... Our relationship with any nation, just like anybody else's relationship with anybody else, is dependent upon how you want to approach it. So we have had a near-violent, non-existent relationship with Tehran for the last 40 years, and there's no reason to believe that that is going to change when you look at the potential succession of power in Iran. And that would be a complete shame, and it would be a tragedy for the United States to say, look, we're going to have a relationship with with a... potentially nuclear power that is hostile to everything we believe and and we don't have a relationship with them. In other words, we have no means of communications, no means of interaction, so we've got to fix that. Um, The challenge is, I I think this administration coming in understands that very clearly. We've got some very learned and very capable hands that are going to approach it. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to look like other than the possibility of getting back into the JCPOA. I don't know the cost in terms of our ability to inject ourselves. I don't know what type of voice we'll have among the other participants in the JCPOA going forward. Um, But the challenge that we have is that if there aren't controls and inspections necessary, some type of an ability to peer into what this regime in Iran is doing and being able to verify that so we can establish some trust in terms of what they say vis-a-vis what they're doing, we're going we're gonna to find an, in some type of an information gap or in the absence of information, Saudi Arabia is going to build a nuke on its own as well. Since the United States will have lost, potentially lost the ability to try to influence actions in the Gulf region to keep nuke capability out. Otherwise there will be a race for nukes. And that's the last thing we want. Can,
2: can I build on... Uh, uh... As, as much as Iran has made it easy to be hated from the uh, bombing in Beirut, uh, Lebanon, uh, early in my career, uh, through supporting uh, insurgents in Iraq, you can't dismiss a culture, 3,000 year culture, 80 million people, educated populace, Uh You can't discount them as a regional player. And I think that's what the, a lot of folks try to do uh, but we just don't like them. And therefore, because we don't like them, we, we're gonna do everything that we can to make them uh, uh, not be a regional power. Uh, one of the things that I heard from some of our partners, strategic partners is the fact that uh, President Obama described them as a regional power, they found very offensive, uh, but they have the technology, they have an educated uh, workforce, they have a strong culture they could determine I guess probably the the one thing we have in common, uh, they want us out of the region and we want to be out of the region. Um, So at least we're in agreement in United States should be out of the region. Uh, But if you look at what they've developed over the last several years, not only they put themselves on the precipice of uh, being able to develop and deploy a nuclear capability, they have the second most advanced missile capability in the region. Uh, they have a strategy in the cyberspace that has been tested and been utilized uh, to, to demonstrate a capability. Uh, they have, uh, a, whether we like it or not, uh, a, a special operations capable that can, uh, capable force that can influence, we call it malign activity, uh, they call it the, the IRGC goods force. So, they have significant capability that cannot be diminished. Uh, they're going to compete to be a regional power, compete with Turkey, compete with uh, Egypt. And uh, the caution that we have to have is that we have two strategic allies who are willing to fight to the last Americans to roll back uh, this capability that the Iranians are developing. So, the administration coming in, uh, I think, will get back into the Joint Comprehensive Plan Agreement as a baseline. To deal with the rest of the uh, issues. How do we uh, roll back their missile capability? How do we roll back their malign activity? Uh, but recognizing that they are in fact likely to be, regardless of our commitment, a regional and probably dominant power.
4: Rachel, if I could just uh, add
3: on, f- from my perspective on how the administration has opportunity, I see, you see a lot of the things that uh, Iran is doing today where they've just increased their Iranian enrichment. They said by the end of February, they're gonna uh, have a lot of the uh, international inspectors dismissed from the country. So they're kind of like treating this as pressure, a ticking time bomb that's going on inside of Iran to put pressure on the new administration coming in. But what I see is the the maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration did actually puts the Biden administration in a rather good position because, the Iranian economy is really cratered, and there's a lot of pressure there uh, to do something different. And so when the Biden administration comes in, I agree with General Smith, or General um, Marks and General Stewart, that they, w- they will rejoin the JAKOA, but I think they've got the opportunity to open this up a little bit, and I think that's the fear that the Iranians have. When I say open it up, um, extend the time period that they'd be looking at it, look at some of the provisions within side the agreement, and also look at some of the regional actions that they've talked about that are there that they could put on the table also. So I think they're in a position of coming in. They were the same group in a lot of ways that had signed up to the Jacoa initially. Uh, I think Europe's looking for some leadership in here. And at the same time, Iran is probably in a worse position not only here, but also what's going on with the Abraham Accords and how they've been isolated from that perspective
5: also. Hey, Rachel, can I just add one thing? So I think one point General Walsh made was specific to JAKPOA and maybe renegotiating some of the terms, but I think a theme that we're gonna be dealing with over the coming months or years, there's generally this optimism that we are now kind of reengaging with the world, the multinational you know, groups and I think that's all very good and makes a lot of sense, but I think we have to keep a very close eye on, are those groups aligned with us? Are they getting their own act together? Because some of these things, whether it's with China or Iran, there is a time sensitive nature to this. And while it sounds great to get these global, you know, cohesive groups together, you know, China in particular, I think has done a very good job at isolating what Europe needs versus what we need and taking advantage of that. So I think we have to make sure there's a sense of urgency in terms of, you know, how we work with the globe and also make sure where it's appropriate to push the boundaries and say, hey, there were things wrong with JPOA. There was a reason we left it. There might have been more reasons to say, but there were some fundamental flaws. Let's get these fixed. So it's going to be a really interesting time. And what I'll be watching closely is, are we making progress? Are our allies coming up with plans themselves, plans that make sense for us? or do we kind of see some slippage, which I think is really problematic if we start seeing time slipping away?
4: I think it's important to, to Peter's point that this new administration, um, look at it with a, through the perspective of four years. Um, when you look at some of the folks that are coming into this administration, they were present at the creation, uh, specifically with the JICPOA, and they need to be able to view it a little more objectively based on what has happened over the course of time and that we just don't jump right back into it and say, let's have um, a redo, if you will, of where we were four years ago.
1: Yeah, good point. Because I think this is one of those uh, policy topics where we'll see the biggest shift. You know, We've talked about how we think there's going to be, um, there is more bipartisan support for our, the way we're engaging with China at this time and uh, Iran. There's a, there's a pretty big political uh, divide and shift on the topic. So we'll absolutely uh, remain engaged on that topic. Uh, Before we move on to cyber, I wanna take two questions from the audience um, that maybe we can address relatively quickly. Uh, General Stewart, to you, um, how do we expect the Biden administration to secure the South China Sea?
2: To secure the South China Sea? I don't know how you secure the South China Sea given the capability, the uh, anti-ship, anti-access capability that China has built up over the last 19 years, uh, 20 years while we were focused uh, on counterterrorism. Uh, you just think, think about this. Um, uh, if we lost a carrier with 6,000 folks uh, to one of the, uh, the, the anti-ship missiles, the, the nation would go apoplectic.
5: And I don't know how
2: you back uh, away from something like that. Trying to lose a million uh, men in their army, they probably wouldn't miss them. I think I think that's one of the greatest uh, problem sets uh, we have out there in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, among the things, how do you find these targets? How do you defeat those targets? How do you command and control in a space? A- 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 and this is this is part of the challenge for uh, the new Um uh, How do we how do we compete militarily uh, with a, a pure competitor when you don't have air dominance? when you don't have uh, forward operating bases, when you don't have fixed infrastructure that allows you to command and control in multi-domains. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've learned some really important things in Afghanistan and Iraq that are absolutely not transferable competing in that environment. So that would be, that's one of the reasons I don't believe any side really wants to, uh, to, to, to go to a military solution. That's why it's so important to make sure we have the right diplomatic, informational, economic approach so that we win before we ever have to go and, and uh, be successful in the South China Sea. That is a high cost uh, uh, venture. And I don't think uh, it's easy to de-escalate if you lose a carrier uh, in the South China Sea.
4: You know, and I and I would tell you that in order to achieve what, what Vince described is at least minimally has as, as an ingredient in that solution an improved and expanded relationship with Indonesia. Um, the, the, the world's third largest democracy. And we need to kind of focus in on that. We're not gonna control anything, but we at least can put ourselves in a enhanced position to do as General Stewart described.
2: And, and, and the real part of this as we talk about multilateralism is how do we communicate commitment Because, uh, yes, Indonesia would be a really good partner, India would be a really good partner to counter uh, China, but geography matters. And unless we make sure that these uh, countries know that we are committed to them, uh, they're gonna default to, yeah, but China's not going anywhere, it's right here. And geography does in fact matter when you make some of these strategic decisions.
4: And you know, our our relationship with Indonesia has always been troubled. because we've always viewed it through a very appropriately human rights focused moralistic focus, and they've got some legitimate corruption, scar tissue that they've got to get beyond. And we, the United States need to get beyond that as well so that we can have a more fulsome relationship.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, General Stewart, I guess we should, you know, really move on to, to cyber in the last 10 or so minutes that we have uh, the cyber threat backdrop for 2021 is obviously you know, incredibly influenced by the solar wind hack that was um, announced and discovered at the end of last year. Maybe just quickly, uh, you know, from your perspective, what is the risk landscape with regard to cyber? What does it look like in 2021? What do people need to be preparing for? And um, obviously with the lens, through the lens of our competition and uh, challenging relationship with Russia, where do they stand?
2: Uh, Only 10 minutes, huh? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> this is a pretty straightforward topic, right? Um, here, here's, uh, and I'll use SolarWind uh, as uh, as the jump off board. Here, Among the things that we tell people in order to secure your network, whether your personal network or your organizational network, is to keep your operating system up to date. And we generally get a patch sent out that says, uh, your system is uh, out of date, Click on this link and trust us, we're going to update your operating system, and uh, you'll be secure from threats uh, that uh, were identified in this patch. So think about this now. I, adversary sends, gets into the system, understand how your system works, understand the, uh, the, the, the totality, and I really almost mean totality of the enterprise and now designs within a patch, the malware that will allow them to really exploit your system more uh, discreetly. So we trust, and we click on the link to update and launch the malware that now can do uh, turn off systems, identify uh, system administrators, steal the system administrator's privileges, move laterally, move vertically, hide uh, inside your network, and we are none the wiser. And it may not in fact, uh, you, you just happen to have used the wind platform. Uh, and you may not in fact have been the target, but this is the equivalent, uh, and I, don't, I, I won't use it. Um, this is one of the most comprehensive reconnaissance effort uh, I've seen from any nation state or any actor in at least the last 10 years. Uh, they got a really good idea of uh, where our vulnerabilities are. Uh, I don't know that it is over. Uh, if I had that kind of access, I would hide somewhere uh, as uh, I would go quiet. Um, so that as you're inoculating and uh, and hunting, I reserve some capability to come back in on the back end. Uh, you almost have to break down the entire system and network that uses uh, the solar wind platform uh, in order to, uh, to, to, to feel a level of confidence that uh, uh, you've eradicated this threat. No one wants to do that. No one can really do that. Uh, there's still some questions about uh, uh, other systems that may have been com- uh, compromised, but this is the future. Uh, this is the future because it is, um, although this was a very sophisticated, very deliberate uh, effort, it is not that difficult to get inside our systems. Uh, I tell the story recently that uh, I was looking at my network and I saw an Android system on my network that I didn't understand where the hell that came from. Uh, that Android system happened to be my Sony Bravia TV. And uh, it happened to be connected to the, the wifi and it wasn't secure. So my unsecure Sony TV could have had access to my browser, which could have then given it access to my business accounts because I, my, my uh, business accounts uh, log into my browser. And if that wasn't secure, it now compromised the entire business accounts uh, that, that's connected. So we're all on the front lines is the message. Uh, every one of us who has some smart device is a threat vector. We're now working from home, which means that uh, you know, we've increased the, the threat attack surface. If I'm an adversary, I'm looking for the weakest link. I'm looking for someone who doesn't update their operating system. I'm looking for folks who uh, use weak passwords uh, the word password continues to be the password that most people use, uh, which I find really remarkable. Uh, and some folks get really clever and they use uppercase uh, P uh, and they may add 1234 on the back end. Uh, but that's where as a brute force hacker I'm going immediately, I'm going to put the common passwords. Um, We continue to encourage folks to use uh, two-factor authentication, where if you log in, uh, someone's got to send you a confirm, approve uh, your login. Uh, Folks uh, find that uh, challenging to do, but it's an easy thing to do. The threat is real. It's not just uh, nation states. Uh, I could talk extensively about all the big three uh, Russia, China, and North Korea, who have not only demonstrated a capability, uh, they've demonstrated intent, and they've used uh, their system, uh, their, uh, their their uh, cyber formations to go after uh, those people who uh, they oppose their views. But it's also criminals. Um, ransomware continues to grow over the last several months. Ransomware has grown by about 70%. Uh, and so you'll continue to see uh, folks uh, who compromise a system and require some sort of ransom in order to give you back your data. So the threat is real from nation state, the threat is real from criminal and activists, and we do not, disappointingly enough, have a system that stitches together um, public and private uh, relationships and develop a collective defense uh, against these threats. So the small and medium sized business, many of them fail after a breach, are on their own going up against uh, nation state actors and criminals who are very capable and very sophisticated. So we'll continue to see uh, uh, all of us uh, being part of the attack surface and you'll continue to see uh, nation state continue to improve their capabilities and threaten uh, us asymmetrically and we still don't have a good comprehensive strategy to deal with all that. And I will stop there as I've told enough doom and gloom on cyber for one day.
1: Well, that's a a perfect segue into my question. Given that we all are part of the attack surface and that there hasn't been um, a comprehensive policy around uh, addressing cyber warfare as a a domain of war, um, you know, given just how comprehensive and, and vast the threat is, where can we expect policy to go um, in this administration? Where can we see public and private partnership hopefully improve?
2: Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as we haven't uh, declared in the domain of war. I, I think I think we've accepted that. Um, I think we put some things in place uh, uh, to defend Ford and uh, and the like that I think recognizes that we can't passively uh, wait for the adversary to take their shot and then clean up on aisle nine. Uh, I I just participated in an exercise, and I asked uh, uh, really two straightforward questions, uh, I thought. Um, One, who's the ultimate coordinator of the threat pitcher? And I didn't get a very good answer. I got, uh, we all are. Uh, which, if everybody is, then there probably isn't a common uh, cyber threat picture that uh, folks can go against uh, the, the threat. And then the second question is, who uh, who coordinates uh, uh, counter operations, uh, hunt operations? And again, I, get, I get, we all are. Uh, again, if we all are, then we're going to have fratricide in that space. So, I haven't seen uh, this play out for a number of years. I was very surprised at the high level exercise where I couldn't pin the rows on one individual organization that collates all of the information and make it available to to the cyber landscape. And that means not just at the national level, but down at the tactical uh, uh, state, local tribal level. Because if you're not doing that now, uh, pre-crisis, you're not gonna be able to do that at time of crisis because you've got to build the layers that uh, make up that data and you've got to build trust in that data. So I was very surprised that that didn't exist. And then uh, who owns the fight? Who owns going after it? Is it Cyber Command? Is it NSA? Is it CISA? Is it FBI? Yes, it depends, but you've got to build that, uh, who owns the fight, the counter uh, strike, if you're going to do something, who owns the hunt initiative, and what are the roles in relationship and how do you do the command and control? And we still don't have that, but we know it's a domain of warfare. We know we've got some capability, uh, but we're still not quite stitched up uh, strategic through tactical and fighting this fight.
5: And I've got one question, if I can ask you, General Stewart. You know, I feel like we kind of have to go there with, you know, the rise of Bitcoin lately, what's going on in cryptocurrencies. I think there's a lot of reasons Bitcoin has, you know, attracted a lot of attention. Part, there's ease of access, right? Companies are making it much more easy for people to purchase it. I think there is some concern about inflation and people looking at it as a hedge. I think there's even some amount of disenfranchisement or concern about the way certain policies are going on the monetary side of things that have kind of all persuaded people to take a look at Bitcoin. Where does it fit into this whole cyber concept? Is it part of this being fueled by what's going on with cyber? Are there risks that we're not thinking about? Just kind of some general thoughts on that.
2: And I'm the worst person to ask about Bitcoin. My son asked me about Bitcoin at $900, and I said, oh, "This is too speculative. It's, uh, it's just I, I I don't know how to put a value behind it, and uh, so I didn't buy any. Bitcoin. I haven't. I, so, um, so here's uh, I guess I guess what folks are looking for is something that they uh, they have a level of confidence that uh, the, whether it's a currency or, there, there's immutability of the, the thing. And I think a lot of folks believe that Bitcoin gives them that, uh, that immutability of currency, but I'm not quite sure because I don't know how to peg it against something. It's kind of like art. I, you, you, you like it or you don't. Um, but I think in the, I, have, I haven't been able to stitch together how cybersecurity and Bitcoin uh, cryptocurrency um, uh, and, and the whole blockchain piece ties together to make things more secure. So I don't really have a good answer on that one, uh, Peter, but I think people are looking for something that they can feel is more immutable, more secure, more confidence and some Default into Bitcoin, but I'm—I just wish I'd bought it at 900. That's all.
5: Yeah, or at 10,000 or 20,000. I think a lot of us are in that boat, but um, I think it is going to be a topic of conversation going forward. And, and it, it, there is—I do believe that there is some level of negative signaling on kind of how people view the establishment when Bitcoin is rising, precisely because of some of its quality So it's something I think we've kind of got to watch from a you know geopolitical sense as well. What's going on there? Why is it going on? Um, a lot of it's economic, but maybe there's a little bit more to it. So it's something you know, I think is registering with a lot of people in a way that it hasn't in a long time.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. let me just go back to Rachel's question uh, on uh, the cybersecurity piece, because you're going to see increased level of uh, attention at the national security level. Uh, You're going to see probably a new uh, cyber uh, uh, senior at the ODNI and you're starting to see, you've seen the new uh, cyber individual at NSA, their cybersecurity director. And so how do we uh, solve those two problem sets that I laid out there? Who owns the picture and who fights the fight? And I think they're putting a team together that uh, will allow us to do that.
1: I appreciate you being able to answer such a a challenging and uh, very topic in a a short amount of time. And given that we are at the the end of our time here, I just want to thank everyone for joining today. We hope that you've enjoyed the discussion. General Walsh, General Marks, General Stewart, and of course, Peter, thank you so much for contributing to this conversation. Um, to our audience, please reach out at any time at info at We would love to answer any questions that you may have um, either on the heels of this webinar or webinar at any time. Uh, please do consider us a resource, and we look forward to seeing you guys all at our next webinar. Be well.
0: Thank you, everyone, for your contributions to this conversation, and thank you to our listeners for giving us the time today. We appreciate the opportunity to share our geopolitical insights with our friends and clients. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. Thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.